Welcome to the mikvah.org podcast. The mikvah organization has been dedicated to the education and resources for Jewish family life since 1975-5735. You can support our vital work at mikvah.org forward slash donate. Thank you for your support and enjoy today's recording. Thank you for being an active member of the mikvah.org community, bringing our podcast into the top 1% of all religious and spirituality podcasts being shared globally. In order to continue our vital work and continue with more podcast episodes, we invite you to partner with us. Please consider sponsoring an episode in memory of a loved one or an honor or schuss of someone special, perhaps a birthday, a celebration, a yardside dedication. There are so many reasons why dedicating a podcast episode on mikvah.org would be a tremendous merit for your loved one. Please reach out for donation opportunities to podcast at mikvah.org. I thank you in advance for your consideration and helping to continue the mikvah.org podcast grow. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from mikvah.org. This week, in honor of Hey Tevis, we are interviewing several people in connection to Sfarim and books. Today, we have the privilege of having a discussion with Mrs. Dina, also known as Dvaralea Rosenfeld. So Dina, or Dvaralea Rosenfeld, has served as the editor-in-chief and creative director of Hachai Publishing for close to 30 years, and Hachai has become an award-winning publisher under her leadership. She has also written over 20 Jewish children's books of her own, including classics such as The Very Best Place for a Penny, Kind Little Rifka, and Labels for Label. Her most recent title about the important topic of inclusion, We Can Find a Way, was released in the fall of 2018 and recorded on Tovito for children to enjoy. Drolea lives with her family in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, where she conducts community mikvah tours and presents variety workshops on a variety of Jewish topics. So with that really impressive resume, Drolea, let's um, begin this discussion by saying, how did you um, come to be an author of children's books? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, first of all, Hi, and thank you for having me. I always love an opportunity to talk about books and be surrounded by books. So this is fun for me. Um, my mother, Allah Shalom, was a first grade teacher, a master teacher. She could teach anyone to read. So naturally for her own children, she invested in a beautiful library of books. And I was surrounded by books from a young age. And my parents, both of them, both my mother and my father, a blessed memory, spent many hours reading out loud to us. And they, you know, my father kind of had this acting um, technique where he would do different voices and keep, keep the reading sessions fun. And uh, we were completely mesmerized when our parents would sit down to read to us. And I, I think those experiences in childhood leave a very lasting impression. So, Books were always around, books are always there. And it is so, it is very powerful when an adult sits down with a child to read. So naturally, when I started teaching preschool, I was thrilled, you know, to tell stories of the Parsha, for example. But I found that this was a very long time ago, and I did not have a library of Jewish books, um, books on Jewish topics, or books that would underscore the message of the Parsha. There was absolutely nothing. I had to go to the public library, take out books, uh, or go to a bookstore and buy secular books and draw little yarmulkes on the boys. I don't know, <laughs> all your listeners are probably too young to remember the bad old days when we didn't have our own kids' literature. So it, teaching a lesson on Avis Yisrael, I, I still remember, I, the only thing I found was a book about a monkey making friends with a giraffe. It was some kind of, you know, it was, it was not good. It was not directed. It was not, a from child couldn't find himself or herself in these books. And it, it left a big hole in the curriculum. So I first came at it as a teacher saying, why don't we have books that, you know, speak to our own children? That was the beginning. Okay, great. So you came in as a teacher and you started, um, you know, from that perspective. Um, so then what would be, what, what would you say are the goals for your books then? What are the goals for your books? 
Okay, so the very, the first, you know, the first obvious lack was, you know, why don't we have characters that look like our children look? But it became clear very quickly, and it's not enough to just draw a kippah on a character and say, now it's a Jewish book. And I didn't realize this because I was only 19 at the time, but I was walking straight into a minefield um, because what is a Jewish book is a very controversial topic and it is addressed in a, in a wide variety of forms. People are like, well, what is it? What makes a book a Jewish book? And, you know, some people say, well, just having a Jewish character makes it Jewish. You know, are there kids cartoons where they have like one Asian child and one um, African-American child and one kid with a kippah and that makes it all multicultural. But that's never going to be sufficient for us. So coming at the topic of children's literature and kids' books from the perspective of what gives a book Jewish value is a very different question. And we've been, and I personally have been trying to answer this question for a long time. And through the journey at Hachai Publishing, as we continue to fine tune our mission statement and make sure that every single book has the values we want to, you know, to present to our children, that's how um, we're trying to answer this question. What is a Jewish book and what's the value? Okay, well, I think we're gonna we're gonna delve deeper into this topic as we continue. Absolutely. But um, how did you come to be the editor and creative director at Achai? I mean, you entered as a teacher, as an author. How did you become the editor? Right. Okay, so that was the journey. The journey was from well, actually, the journey was from older sister because I took the opportunities to read to my baby brother, um, and I made a lot of discoveries about children's books from the other end. So first, I had you know, adults reading to me as a very young child, and I just loved books. And I was one of those kids who looked at every item in the illustrations as well and noticed all the details. And then having this baby brother, 12 years younger than I, meant that I was like his second mother. So when my mother was busy, I got to sit and read to him. And it occurred to me that it would be great to record the reading session so that when I wasn't home, because I was in, let's say I was eighth grade or something, and he was very little, then he could turn on the tape recorder, you're probably too, too young to even know what a tape recorder or remember tape recorders. I would read to him and then he could listen to the story again by himself and turn the pages of the book. And I distinctly remember how frustrating it was to read a book. He was about three or four years old and he kept interrupting. He kept asking questions. He kept saying, why did he do that? Where did his mommy go? What he kept asking questions as we were reading this book together. And that's when I discovered that a book is not just a book. A picture book to a toddler and a young child is part of a much larger conversation. And I would urge your listeners, like, don't be frustrated if your child stops you in the middle many times to ask a question or make a comment. And all I, all I can tell you is that those cassette tapes of this whole experience are adorable because his three or four-year-old self was so cute asking all these questions. It wasn't at all what I intended, but it taught me a lot about how children experience the, a reading session. When you open up a book, something absolutely astonishing happens and a conversation is born. Okay. As a mom, right. So as a, so as a teacher and a mother, right, right, this later on, this became a very important part of the journey. I mean, this is, this is unbelievably powerful because so much of being a teacher is drilling olive bays, lining up, going in, going out, you know, putting their coats on, taking their coats off. The, the minutes, the, the few precious moments when we're actually um, transmitting these, our precious values are like, they're, they're just some minutes throughout the, the school day and throughout life. And as a busy mother, you know what that looks like. You have to make supper. You have to get everyone in the bath and out of the bath and, and get their clothes. You have to get, get to the laundry done and you got to fold everything and put it in the drawers. And of course, you know, you can have a conversation with your child about things while you're doing that. As long as your phone is turned off and you're not distracted, you can, the conversation of childhood is, is very precious. But when it's encapsulated between the covers of a children's book, 
it, the, the power of the combination, it's, it's an art form to have the illustrations and the text be a perfect blend and encapsulate something important. So, so I I what, I, what I'm hearing you say then is that you're seeing the reading of children's books as a time for a parent to transmit values, which I guess would bring us back to the original question about what makes a children's book with the time right. to focus on what the values are that we want transmitted to our children because they're being transmitted through the text and through the illustrations. Right, but there, there is... <laughs> That's already like a more involved look at it because if you just if you just pick up a silly book and read it to to a child, you still get the connection, you still get some humor, you still get that one-on-one -on -one time that's so valuable. So even if you're just reading one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, your child is happier than than they'll ever be. It's wonderful. Right, but Full attention. The values of Jewish exactly. Book. Okay. Right. So when we take it to a to the next level, it's like. How can we waste these precious moments saying one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish? I have so much to explore with you, my child. There's so much we can do together in this precious time. So not only do you have that wonderful thing that happens when it, uh, any adult, a caregiver, a parent, a grandparent sits down to read to a young child, uh, you also, so first of all, it's actually a wonderful preventative measure in when it comes to discipline. Because sometimes you have a choice. You can say, stop that right now, get off that, do this. You can say, um, here's a lollipop, <laughs> here's a video, you know, leave me alone for a few minutes, I have things to do. Or you can drop everything and say, would you like to hear this book? And all of a sudden, all the things that you need to happen have happened. The child is, has stopped it, <laughs> has gotten down from there, has left his little sister alone, and he's running over to you because you're holding a book in your hand. You're holding, I think it's more precious, it's more uh, powerful and it's more meaningful than the lollipop or, you know, or, or, the, or the threat, you know, or we're not gonna go out if you, because what you're saying is, oh, come here, I want all of you. I want your brain, I want your heart, I want your mind, I want, I want this time with you. And it's especially, I think it's especially meaningful when you are in the middle of a lot of things. When you're like, you know what, let's just take the clean pajamas right out of the laundry basket today because let's sit down and read some books. I definitely hear your passion for the for books <laughs> and for the, and yes. the value that parents can use exactly. time with their children. So let's let's go back to our original question. We asked how you became, um, you know, right. editor at a high. Would you say it was just your lack, your love of books that just automatically transitioned you from author to editor? No, it was, it was a little, there were a few more steps involved. Like the okay, first so thing let's, was, let's talk about that. yeah. So the first thing was, Hey, I don't have any books. And the second thing was, um, it, it should be embarrassing to admit it, but as a young teacher, I was, you know, I was a novice and I had, um, run out of lesson plan before I ran out of day. There was more day left <laughs> until the bus came to get the kids. So I had about 15 minutes with no lesson plan. And I just, um, and these are two very different art forms, storytelling and picture books. They have some overlap, but they're different. But at the time, I just looked at these kids and they didn't have something to do. We did, we did everything, the arts and crafts, circle time. And I just called them over. They were already in their coats. And I said, once upon a time, I was casting around for an idea. There was a shiny little penny. And, you know, uh, he and how he lived in a drawer with pens and pencils and keys. And it was a real flight of imagination. And what was great about the story is I could, I sort of dragged it out with my eye on the clock, you know, about how the penny rolled here and rolled there. And, the, and guess where the penny ended up? In the Tzitzaka box. And then the bell rang and the bus was, had to come. But those moments of watching those children, their faces were completely absorbed, mouths open. I'm like, I went home and I told my mother, the master teacher, I said, that was really something. And so I guess the, the, the real short answer is how did it get started in general? Because my mother said, you've got to turn that into a book. So my mother made me, she did. <laughs> so I was 19. I, I mean, I still, I always listen to my mother, but definitely at 19. Okay, my mother said so. Well, the very best place for a penny is actually published by Kahas, right? By Kahas, okay. yes. So, so, so tell me how you ended up. So how that happened. Okay, well, I was, a, as I said, I was a Kala at the time. So my husband took me around to different publishers. One agreed to publish it 
um, in a soft cover version with only two colors. Because back then we didn't have digital color separation. You had to do these separations by hand and each color that you added, added to the cost. And I felt that they didn't really believe in the product or understand my passion for an actual book. It was gonna look more like a coloring book if I let them publish it. But when I went to Kahas and it was under the guidance of Yossi Friedman, Rabbi Yossi Friedman, um, he saw the potential. And Kahas was one of the first publishers to focus on children's material that had a, li a literary quality. The Wind in the Sukkah. Do you remember some of these older books? I mean, they, they started off also with two colors, but they were hardcover. They were written in a way that young children could hear, could listen to every word. Because some of the early uh, Jewish children's books had a lot of good content, but the level was, you know, the reading level and then, you know, the amount of words didn't quite match, weren't quite age appropriate. So it was just, it was a new, it was kind of a pioneering thing to get into and to pitch a book at that time to Jewish publishers was a challenge. You know, I was asked, do you think people will buy a book if there's so few words on a page? It doesn't look like they're getting their money's worth. And, you know, having to explain from an educational point of view, like that's exactly what a, a you know, a children's book looks like for a, a two to th or three or four year old um, and not having all this text to read or most, most teachers, if you ask them back then would say, oh yeah, I don't read the words. I just edit as I go. And so part of the dream was to have real children's literature that's age appropriate and fits all the, uh, you know, exciting, in the exciting world of children's books to open a Jewish one and have it fit that, um, those criteria, that was really, that was the dream. And I have to say, I was also, um, I guess when I look back, it's funny, but I was very ambitious. I didn't just want to write children's books. I wanted to create children's classics for the from market because there are certain books that if you go anywhere in the you know pretty, pretty much anywhere in the world and people are sitting around and talking about books they loved as young children I'm talking about in a secular group of people there are certain titles that they'll mention like oh my mother used to read this to me and my teacher I remember this from kindergarten I'm like wouldn't it be amazing if we had titles that every from child recognized and thought of fondly um, and wanted to buy for their own children. So I might've been 19, but I was like, we need this. We need classics. We had, and trying to write classics meant, in the beginning, I was kind of all over the place. I wrote books in prose. I wrote books in poetry. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to provide everything possible. Um, retelling. At some point you became editor at a high and got other authors. Right, but, but it wasn't like that. At first it was just like <laughs> me sitting with um, a yellow legal tablet and a pencil, not a pen, and scribbling, you know, and getting text together. And then, you know, um, a lot of times my mother would say, oh, I know an artist. <laughs> I know, I know Eileen Letterer, but give her a call. Maybe she can illustrate for you. It was like a very homespun kind of beginning to say, we need books and we need, and there was no end to the type of books we needed. We needed everything. So did so, you begin the Hachai branch of Under Civilization? I did not. At okay. the same okay. time that I was first being published by Kahas, then I was approached by Hachai. It's under the auspices of Tzivis Hashem. And they were interested in publishing. Um, I, had, I had some manuscripts that had a lot of humor and there wasn't a place to, to go with those books. So a new publisher that was open to it, it was, it was, this was for labels for label. I said, this book has humor. And most of the Jewish books at that time were a little more serious. And I wanted this book just to, to be funny. And I wanted the illustrations to be funny. So I um, actually was involved because it was a very a small startup at the time. Um, I was involved in auditioning, I guess, getting samples from various artists. So I had a number of artists who tried to draw. I said, I need you to draw the middle of the book where two, the two boys are not sharing. The room is full of all kinds of objects and every single one of them has label attached. And that was the scene. And I, I approached about five different artists and at that time, the late great Norman Nodell had been doing lots of projects for Sivas Hashem, but in a style that was quite serious. He had a, he had a serious, almost 1950s looking style of, you know, that we, something you'd see on a 1950s billboard, serious adults, you know. And when he gave me a sample, you know, of these two boys, I'm like, oh, he gets it. 
he created those characters in the sample and then he just ran with it. And at the time I never intended for that to become a series, but it just evolved that way. So I, I started getting involved with the high and gradually um, then I started noticing that it, it was, they were swamped with submissions and it was difficult to get back to people in a timely fashion. So I started to look over the submissions that were coming in and draw to their attention anything that I thought had merit. And eventually it dawned on me that um, it's very nice that I'm doing this, but it's actually a job. <laughs> like, so I became you know, um, an associate editor first, handling submissions, a submissions editor. And um, at a certain point, um, there was a, I discovered this piece of paper that had just a few words on it. And they said to me, do you think this is anything? They, they handed me this uh, piece of paper and I'm looking at this, it's going, is it Shabbos yet, said Malky? No, Malky, said her mother. And I, and I, I think I looked and I, said, I kind of thought to myself, I can tell you if this hasn't, you know, if this is good, but I think you have to pay me <laughs> for my opinion. And so is it Shabbos yet was one of my first discoveries. And again, it fed exactly into my own goals of creating Jewish classics. Well, that, there you go. That's definitely a, considered a classic. It, <laughs> it's such a classic that there is a parody of it in one of the from, you know, um, women, the children's magazines, yeah. they, making fun of Malki and her mother and her, her perfect <laughs> mother dressed up uh, and doing, making the entire Shabbos in one day right. and being patient with her child who is nagging her all day long with the same question. So, yeah, I always say that Malki's mom is the, the mom we love to hate. You know, but you know that when it comes into parody and it's gone into other magazines and there's been so many variations that it has right. the level yeah. of classic. Yes, at this point, you know, if it's a classic, there could be a parody of a classic. Right. So that was a, that was a happy day. I okay, said, yes. so now let's fast forward so many years. Yeah. You're now the editor. So, uh, yeah, so I gradually. Children's books out there. We yeah. talked about books being like a time for a parent to transmit values. Yes, there's the bonding time no matter what it is. Exactly. But let's do two things at once. We're spending our one-on-one -on -one bonding time with our child and we're choosing to transmit values. Um, and we, this is, you know, under McFadden.org podcast, we are talking uh, primarily exactly. to a Chabad audience and uh, Chabad moms. So let's right. talk a little bit about what are the values that we want to transmit to our children and how that um, works through Hachai. If we can backtrack a little bit, I know Hachai is under Sivs Hashem and there were definitely Hiraz that the Rebbe had given to Sivs Hashem. Yes, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about some of those things okay and how that plays out in Hachai books. Okay, so, so this was the dream. In other words, the, you know, the, the editor who started Hachai, this is um, Mayor Bendit, had moved on to other things and they offered me to, you know, I, I take over as editor in chief. And I felt that that was a, a real turning point where I could implement, as you say, the all the, the haras that Rabbi David Shalom Pape received directly from the Rebbe through his work in the Mashiach times. Because at that time, he was sending artwork into the Rebbe. He was sending cover sketches. He was, you know, sending art, you know, the, the art that went with the various stories and articles. So there were, there were treasures there. And um, he, we still consult with him if we have any uh, questions about something, you know, and, and questions come up all the time. And because the Rebbe's Hairas are front and center and the responsibility of each and every book is so great, we've developed at Hachai a list of standards and um, items that we point out to every artist that we work with. Um, because in a picture book, if the text is really crisp and fun to read out loud, because remember, this is for pre-readers primarily. This is not books for children to read on their own. The, the real, you, you know, the, the primary value is parents or caregivers reading out loud to a child. So we have, what, what's great about that is you have great vocabulary words. You can introduce all kinds of concepts. You don't have to be limited too much um, with phonics like you do with readers. And you can create this perfect world for a child to learn and absorb through their eyes. It's a visual medium. So I'll tell you what, a story that happened very early on. It was actually in the production of Labels for Label. Um, we were doing like a last review right before going to print. And I noticed for the first time that in the scene of Label digging items out from under his bed, the artist had drawn him down on his knees. So I went to my own personal rub 
And I said, I noticed this, but it's it's late in the game and does it really matter? And you know, when I bathe my kids, I I get down on both knees to wash their hair. Like we, you know, it's it's a human thing to do. And I'll never forget what the ref told me. He said, but in print, right? In the world of the picture book, you can create a perfect world. So it was a last minute and it was before there were computers and digital files. I packed up this finished piece of artwork. You know, it was on a, on a, on a board. It wasn't on a screen, right? Wrapped it up, took it to the post office, mailed it back to Norman Nodell and said, I'm so sorry. We might have to pay you extra at this late date, but can you please shift the position of the character so he's down on one knee and he's not on both knees because this is something that we don't do. This is a position we don't do and you know we try to avoid. But the idea that a picture book can be better than real life, more perfect than real life, stuck with me. I'm like, yes, we can have a yarmulke on every head. We can have a mezuzah on every door. We can show, you know, the ultimate of tzniyas in, in our characters. Even if in real life, you know, little girls can wear a bobby sock or their knee sock falls down. Nothing. We can show, you know, at that, at that point I said, okay, I'm really committed. I'm all in to keeping the standards as high as possible because then I can meet two goals. I never want someone to pick up a book that high produces and say, well, my kids wear tights, so I can't buy this book because it keeps really high quality literature out of a home where, and that's the home, that's the customer that's underserved. So I never want that to be a barrier. So standards, we just started making all kinds of guidelines. So there are homes where little girls wear like, socks in the summer and tights in the winter. So I'm like, okay, we'll do tights all the time because it's not, nobody will mind if we go to the, right? To a standard that includes more people. In a way, that's inclusion. It's inclusion. You talk about the fact that we have though, we have little girls in our books. You talk about the, yes. you know, what, what Rabbi Pape was told for the- Yes, the right. So I have no, I, I have clear, I have a very clear direction here. And other editors do call me like what, you produce books and they have, you know, uh, female characters in them, mothers and little girls. Um, and in the publishing world, you know, the, the cutoff age is about six, I guess. And they, they don't show grown women in books. And there's, it's, a, it's a very controversial thing. Um, I understand the good intention behind it. But the Rebbe did tell, um, at one point, uh, Rabbi Pape sent in a, a magazine cover that showed a little boy getting ready for Pesach or something, one of the one of his issues. And the Rebbe asked that, that a girl be placed on the cover as well in, you know, separate. I'm not, not that they're do necessarily interacting or what, but that, that a girl is represented there. So that clearly the Rebbe wanted it to be done in an appropriate manner, but we're not erasing little girls from our books. And some of our books, um, well, I'll show you here. This is separate and equal. I'm, I'm holding up a book called I Have a Jewish Name. And you can see that although we have female characters, little girls here and little boys here, they are separate, but represented on the cover because little girls have Jewish names and little boys have Jewish names. So clearly, you know, it, it would be, I can't imagine producing something that didn't represent and include. Right. We also mentioned before about opening up a book and being able to find yourself. So That's we right. want the boys and the girls to find themselves. And I know, you know, over our world has evolved over the years. So maybe you could talk a little bit of also about how Hachai has evolved over the years in some of the areas of inclusion. Sure. Well, this book happens to be a good example too, because Jewish names don't all sound one way. There are Sephardic names, you know, so there, I realized that there's a category I call Jewish inclusion. So we have a character here that has Lampeus. We have um, names that are very um, Hasidish, common in the Hasidish world, common in the Sephardic world, wanting to include. We also, you know, obviously being Jewish doesn't look just one way. So we have characters of all types and stripes in terms of skin color, hair texture, you know, just to, to show that, you know, that that's that's real inclusion you know, and, and that it all represents the body of the Jewish people and the, the unity and that representation is exceedingly meaningful. So I mentioned in your bio about the book, We Can Find a Way. Can you tell us a little yes. bit about that and how that also brings in some, some of the values of inclusion? 
Okay, so that's a classic inclusion book and something that um, also very dear to my heart. The, the Hakai um, also took a big chance because we had the, the first um, disabled character that I'd seen in any Chromebook, which was um, on the ball where Yessi and Label meet a friend in a wheelchair. And now I think wheelchairs have become shorthand for any disability. It's very visual, it's easy to portray. Um, and we do have, um, you know, we've done this before. Real inclusion to me is when you don't even mention it, but in, in the book On the Ball, it was obviously a new experience for these brothers to encounter a friend, a boy their own age, who just got around in a wheelchair, as a wheelchair user. So I think it was really brave of Hachai to publish that. It wasn't clear that there'd be customers for it, but people responded. They didn't just say, well, my own child doesn't use a wheelchair, so I'm not buying this book. That's not what happened. And I was I felt very vindicated and kind of proud of the market that they were they were willing to say, you know, my child eventually is going to encounter all kinds of different people and let's do it first through a book. Because that's one of the wonderful things about a book, including um, as wide, um, uh, you know, kind of as wide an experience as you can to prepare your child for life. So these books are, um, they, they have tremendous power. And it opens a conversation. You know, a child might look at that and say, why is this book? What might have happened to him? Why is he smiling? You know, does he have a boo-boo? Does it hurt? Suddenly, the conversation goes all over the place. And the next, you know, if, if a child does encounter somebody who um, walks with a cane or is using crutches, you know, there's a wider um, uh, lesson plan, let's say. There's a wider um, model that you're trying to, uh, to, to teach your child, which is, Everyone's worthy of respect. You know, when somebody uses a wheelchair to, to, to get different places, the main idea is they're going places to do things just like you are, but in a you know, slightly different manner. But it's still there. There are brothers and our sisters and our friends, and we embrace every single bit of it. Right. So that's a let's, let's revisit for some of our readers. I think this will be particularly meaningful is understanding yeah. some of the hierarchies that that Hachai, some of the some like can you give us some more examples of what you tell the artists? You know, you mentioned the mezuzah and every right. doorpost. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we have boys and girls uh, maybe not interacting with each other, but they're both represented there. What other examples can you right. give us? Well, I want to first I mean, I can use like we can find a way as as a concept. Um, one of the ways we can represent boys and girls, we, which we do all the time, is, is to work within a family unit. They're brothers and sisters. And that makes it highly appropriate, highly realistic. And truth be told, you know, a lot of the interactions between brothers and sisters, um, even the negative ones, are amazing learning experiences. Like we need children to learn how to negotiate and how to fight and how, and how to fight fairly and not really injure somebody else with words or with fists. So using the, the, you know, the family unit, brothers and sisters, I think is, um, it, it's working for us. It, it's great. I think parents respond to that and, and kids can relate to that. So you know, I feel though, as parents, when we look at children's books, sometimes we, you know, we can have books maybe from random, from other publishers and we don't, we think, okay, the text is okay. And we're not realizing how much intention there is in the pictures. So let's talk a little bit more about- Well, it's not, it's not just the pictures. You mentioned right. things that you tell yeah. the artist. So you okay. mentioned those on the door. What right. are the things you tell the artist? What are the things you okay. Like, oh, wow, that's really amazing actually. All right. So one of the things is, you know, again, imagining a perfect world. And in my own work, I do imagine, I use my power of imagination to picture myself handing the Rebbe each book. So as I'm working on it, I'm like, if the Rebbe, what, you know, people, I don't know if people realize this, but one of the first things that Rebbe was involved with before accepting the Nasius, before that was even, you know, on the table was, um, was the Rebbe was, uh, was running the publishing arm of Lubavitch and, and producing children's material. And the Rebbe remained very, yes, the Rebbe remained extremely um, precise about his use of commas. You'll notice in handwritten letters of the Rebbe, he would put a comma in or take a comma out. And, you know, I can, in a very small way, relate to that. <laughs> I am putting commas in and out till the last minute, till this thing's, in, you know, in print and in my hands. I'm like, should I put a comma there? But, you know, the, the idea that, you know, was kind of once an editor, always an editor, and the Rebbe looking at items with an editorial eye is very inspiring to me. So often a shliach would send something in, poster, brochure, and the Rebbe would send out very, you know, precise answers about, well, where's the Baruch Hashem? 
Where's the Pesiata Dishmaya? So you can look at all Hachai books do have a Pesiata Dishmaya in, fr in front. Uh, near right. the and I see also Lahashem Haratzumlaya. Lahashem Haratzumlaya. This is a very traditional Jewish thing. So embedded in the books are all these values, even in the production of the book. You know, so right. these are these are decisions that became institutionalized. You know, like I, we would see something, we would create a policy. You need to reach book and think about yeah. what would the Rebbe say if I hand exactly. Well, what would the Rebbe say? Things that come up to your mind. Yes. So um, I would say something again. The halacha is paramount. You know, so we're talking about mezuzah placement. And now that we have digital files, very often some of the artists won't get it exactly right because mezuzah placement is a specialty. And I have to say, just like my Rav, you know, I had a question about label being on his knees or not on his knees and it was corrected. Um, the same thing with mezuzah placement. When I walk into um, this, the Stam stores and I ask for an appointment or I leave some, drop something off for the Rav that handles placement, because they, they'll do a walkthrough of your house, right? So I'll bring an illustration. I go, look at what, look at this door. Where exactly in this door frame is the, should the mezuzah be? And they, and they don't laugh me out of the place. They answer my questions. And the Rabbanimai consult also take the chinuch in the books very seriously and are, answer my questions. And I, I remember when I first sat out in a Rav's waiting room, you know, I had, I was clutching some artwork, you know, in my hands. And I heard, like, I heard that there were raised voices in the room and someone had a serious, you know, halachic issue battling it out. I don't know if it was a business issue or a marital issue, but and I'm sitting here with my artwork and I'm going, you know, am I doing the right thing? And then I thought, you know what, I bet this would be the, the highlight of the Rav's day. This kind of question, you know, where like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, I love that. That's great. So that let's talk about, awesome. you know, animals and, you right. know, okay. So that's what, that's my, I think if I, you know, I wouldn't take a book with a message, like we can find a way, which is how do we include everybody in Bubby's birthday party? Because this book is really about inclusion in its very literal sense. And I, and that's a topic that I feel passionate about. I mean, I once um, invited a family to a, a Purim Suda and because of health issues and limitations, and, the, and my living conditions at the time, and I was living on a, in an apartment building that didn't have an elevator, the person literally could not accept my invitation because I couldn't get up those steps. So that, that was a feeling that remained on my heart. And that's something that I really, I put that emotion right, into But the even book. in a book like we can find a way where you're saying yes. those aren't paramount. We said, you know, number one, yes. luck is paramount. So that's where you talk yes. about the the placement. Luck is paramount. Um, you mentioned once, you know, you had a roof that was flat that maybe. Yes. Yeah, that was on a cover. And again, we look it over at the last minute. We're looking at. I'm just going to, I'm going to elaborate more for. Yeah, yeah. So the cat, so the book had featured the characters on a rooftop and the title on top. And it was so cute. But I was like, I don't think this is high enough you know, to, to meet the halachic requirement that has to be. So of course, we get okay. involved, right? Digitally, we raised it. Like there were things to do, but it was, it was a last minute scramble. And I, I don't know, I've been doing this for a lot of years, but until you see it, you just don't see it. So we expect a journey and a kind of, um, there's a story behind every book. There's something, you know, something right. happens. Or we... so I want to just go back to the animals thing because sure. I actually did, yes. as you know, this is a series for Hey Tavith and I did um, interview Rabbi Michal Seligson and he did speak yes. a little bit about what the Rebbe's directives were about animals. Um, so can you tell us how this translates into a chai? When are animals presented? When are they not? When okay. do you... okay. Thank you. So basically, you know, when you see a beautiful woodland scene, I'm holding up a book called my first Balshamto book and you see an outdoor beautiful scene. Um, he's on a, on a pathway outdoors, there are trees, but what you won't see are squirrels or chipmunks or any, and you know, what you might expect to see because those trafe animals are gratuitous and not a part of the story. What is a part of that story, if you look at the original, is that the Balshamto was leading a group of children to Cheder and there was, the Yitzhahara turned himself into a wild beast who confronted them and tried to keep them. So here we have this, we're trying to tell a true story. And number one, it's way too scary. So it's not age appropriate to show a scary beast. And also the scary beast is probably not a kosher scary beast. It's not a cow, it's not a duck. So telling this story um, was to, to both, so we were constantly addressing both things, the age appropriateness and the educational aspect of it, like what a teacher or parent will want to read to a child and not give them nightmares, as well as, do we need to show a trafe animal? 
in this, you know, definitely, we're definitely not doing that. And the reason it was a bigger challenge is because that was kind of integral to the story. What is scaring the children and that the Baal Shem Tov had to teach them? We, we don't fear anything, you know, you don't fear anything. Hashem's the only one um, that the message his father left him with, right? So this is the story we all know. How can we convey it? So here's what we did. One morning they heard growling, which worried all the boys. Some children said, let's run back home. We don't like that noise. So a scary noise. Now, we, if somebody knows the adult, the, the full version of the story, we're staying true to it, but we are definitely keeping it appropriate. But and there are times, something. for example, that an animal will show up, like in Kind Little Rifka, you have pictures of camels. So can you help us for our audience yes. understand right. why exactly. they're yes, why they're no. Right. So those camels are not gratuitous to the story. They're integral to the story. They're also okay. so not like, So they're not extra. Yeah. They're not a squirrel they're, or a cat you, hanging right. out in the you background. You can't tell, right. They're not a decoration. So the truth is, if you were drawing a desert scene, it would be very normal to just throw, you know, to throw some camels in the background because that's what you would normally see. But because the rough said to me that all back then, picture book world is a perfect world. Somehow there's just no extra trace animals hanging around in our forests and our backyards and in our, you know, and it's interesting because a lot of the artists we work with really love to draw animals in every, if you look at secular children's books, there's a cat or a dog or some kind of pet around all the time. So a hamster. have a lot of lambs. Yes, yes. And <laughs> one, of the, one of the devices that's used in children's material and cartoons and in books is to have the child relate to a creature, not to another boy or girl like themselves. So very early on at Hachai, I got, I got submissions that were like, um, I don't know, like, like Dvari the duck does the mitzvah or something like that. And because we, besides doing things that are according to Halacha, because um, I'm, you know, because I'm coming from a Chabad education, that really bothered me until I identify the reason, which is animals do not have an neshama. They do not have mitzvah obligations. So using them as a stand-in for a child does not work for us. At first we, we, we thought, oh, that, that would be so cute if the Varvi the duck does. But we know from Tanya, we know from learning chassidus, right? That it's a human endeavor to do mitzvahs, that it's transcendent, that it's only those that have a nefesh kiss that can make that kind of moral choice. So because it's not grounded in truth, it doesn't matter that it's cute. So you'll notice in all our books, we have human characters, human boys and girls facing challenges, doing mitzvahs with enthusiasm, um, whatever it is, we need people to tell our stories. And I think that also, that again, that became policy. So Achai does not accept animal stories where um, that, that the animals are, are stand-ins for people, where they're anthropomorphized and, and that way. Um, and again, once we, once we recognize that point, we wrote it into policy. And I have to say this too, it's not possible to make any product that is really for everyone. So when I talk to authors or people who would like to write a children's book and I ask them, well, who's your book for? Very often they'll say, it's for everyone. And I understand that because the, the message within each book is, is universal. It's for everyone. Who doesn't need to learn about sharing or you know, charitable giving? I mean, every, you know, every person, but not every product or vehicle can be for every person. So very early on, um, a businessman, advised me and he said, listen, if you're gonna be in the Jewish publishing world, I know this, you need to eliminate the word Hashem because it's too, it's way too narrow. Use the word God and your books will be for everyone. So I thought about it a little bit. I said, is he right? Is the word God for everyone? And you know, it became clear to me very quickly that in my work as a preschool teacher or in the way I spoke to my younger brother in the in the, the lingo and the language that we use on a daily basis, the books that I wanted to create are books for what I now call the Hashem market. So anyone who doesn't regularly use the word Hashem really has other options. They can go to Barnes and Noble, they can buy any book that's in there because, you know, or whatever fits their taste and their educational we choices. We must encourage the wider Jewish right. market to recognize the beautiful value. We do, but I felt right. that if we stick with our primary market, which is the underserved Hashem market, 
those are boys wearing yarmulkes and tzitzis. There are girls who are dressed in, in a certain manner and are used to seeing that. And we want them to, again, derive chizuch by seeing characters who look like themselves, the, the best of them, you know? Um, that is the Hashem market. And so in a way that was such a useful conversation it, because it made me again, like really focus in on what are we doing here? We are making sure that households that use the word Hashem, not just the word Hashem, but who want their children to love Hashem, the word God and the word Hashem are very different. The word Hashem has a softness to it, an immediacy. We tell the children, Hashem is watching. Don't worry. Hashem is with you. We never use the word God or Lord our God, you know, in our, it, it's, this is not the way we talk about it think about or include Hashem in our lives and our children's lives. So, so we talked a little bit about like, we talked about animals, we talked about halacha being yes, about, yes. about boys and girls. Are there yes. any other um, policies that you tell the artists that maybe everyone else would be benefit from? And, in, you know, doing absolutely, I'll give you an example right. for myself. I know yes. you draw a picture of, of candles. I always need to include the third one. So tell us oh, a little bit about that. Yes. Okay. So I believe that those hiras uh, might've been given even to the Neshek campaign. Right. So again, whatever I could find, I implement. So if the symbol of Shabbat, you know, and I think this is something, once you become sensitized to it, you can't unsee it. So if I ever see like a Lubavitch brochure, even if it's for campus or what, anything, I'm like, ooh, you know, and I think at this point, most people have moved past it. Maybe, you know, Let's when I first started. Candle. Right, add that third candle. Right. We have it all over. We have the shape of the Luchais, the shape of the Menorah. Right. right. So again, the Rebbe is very specific. And, and, and when you think about it, like I think about it in terms of the wider Jewish world, what other Gadol, you know, Gadol Hadar, <laughs> there are many, you know, ever stopped to point out these, these really fine points to make sure that visually we're giving the right information to ourselves and our children. The Luchas were the not- came from, He started off in children's publishing and almost, not started off, like the Rebbe was involved. The Rebbe was always involved, right. always involved and cared deeply about the messages that were being given over to the children. And at that time, like I remember when the Rebbe said the Sikha about, the, about not um, having trafe animals in, the child, in, a, in a child's surroundings. And at that time, a lot of people had, you know, um, nurseries that were decorated with animals, sets of sheets. And, right, it was definitely and, revolutionary and changed things. So it changed I don't things. want to take it for granted that our audience, which also there might also be not Chabad listeners listening to this. Yes. And I just feel like we shouldn't take it for granted that everyone knows about all these things. So if we can exactly we delineate right. a little bit about, we talked about animals. Can we talk about the shape of the Luchais, the shape of the Menorah? Yes. So the Rebbe was right. <laughs> the Rebbe wanted everything to come from as accurate a point of view as possible with a real shita. So the Rambam's um, model of the Menorah that like, it looks like it's a hand-drawn ancient kind of a model of what it looks like. Angular. It's, 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 it's angular, beautiful. right. It's not curved shape. And, and, you know, even though in the, um, the arch, uh, the arch of Titus in Rome, it shows that, that you know the menorah had a rounded shape. The Rebbe said perhaps that was an artist's affectation. It was just the way the artist likes to draw candelabra shapes, um, and not necessarily did it reflect accurately that that was the golden menorah. There could have been other lamps or lights, for example. Um, but in in portraying the actual historical menorah, we use we we do show people Hanukkah menorahs that are of the shape that the Rambam. Um, established. And again, we, we sell books throughout the Hashem market in the wider world. You know, I happen to be Chabad, but um, our goal is to make books that are from books, not exclusively Lubavitch books. As you know, Sichos in English does that, and Kahas does that. Hachai is more of um, widespread and through the widest possible market that we can reach. So I know that in conservative Hebrew schools, they use many, many of our books. Um, and and people have uh, have, so have purchased conservative Hebrew schools and the Hasidic market. All using well, it depends. Books. Up to the Hasidic Hasidim that only will um, read read Yiddish to their children. Okay. So even for them, we do have a number of titles in Yiddish, but because the look of the community is so different, we have to be very careful about which books we choose to translate. So we do have an Aleph Bay's book that worked really well in Yiddish, um, the Aleph Bay's trip on the Aleph Bay's ship. And we did that in Yiddish and the characters aren't any particular um, 
they don't look like people. They look like well, little face cards. Right. They're okay. all face cards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, that, that worked really but well. Even, it, okay. Yeah. It, it, you know, because the Lavush in the, and the Minhagen in various communities, I mean, it's just, it's impossible to, it's to impossible make it, to serve everyone. Yeah, to serve everyone. But we try to, you know, to, to show that, you know, some kind of black hat. You'll notice that if we do a Shabbos scene where let's say Tati's leaving the house to go to Shul, usually he's wearing a raincoat because we don't want to say like, what is it a suit? Is it a, is it a kapata? Is it a bekisha? Is it a, you know, like if we try not to, to highlight the differences, but to show a child's experience in, in some kind of Hashem from home. Which is, you know, I had a question for you with what kind of challenges arise during the course of your work. And I'm hearing loud and center that sometimes the challenge is trying to please everybody because there is a wide uh, market. Yeah, that's, that's it. And I had a funny experience. I went to Association of Jewish Libraries Convention. And because in, you know, part of what I do is I feel that a shaitel wearing woman should try to be a presence in this, in this field. So Association of Jewish Libraries, you know, is is, um, is open to all kinds of uh, librarians and Jewish Hebrew schools and um, and Reformed temples and all over. And I'm like, you know what? Let them see that in the from world, a woman can be the creative director and editor in chief of a of a publishing company. And you know, it kind of busts some myths and and make some contacts. So I was sitting on a, <laughs> I was meeting this this um, editor who who works in the reform market, and she said. I don't know what to do about all the different customs. I'm like, what do you mean? She said, I don't know if I should show the mother making kiddush, the grandmother wearing a yarmulke. They got, I'm like, oh dear. <laughs> we, we had a, a little moment of commonality there. We're like, okay, I, I hear you. you. You don't know what to show because uh, how how the Jews in her community, you know, do things. There, there's there's um, you, you can't get exactly what happens in every single Jewish home. But yeah, that's. It's the same thing for us. So when we have a, a group scene or a family scene, generally we try to show tatis with beards. So if we have created a family, like we have a series of books um, where it's called a toddler experience series. And these are concept books, not so much story books. So within the picture book world, there are different categories. And here we take a topic like, um, I go to shul, I go to school, I go to the dentist, I go to the doctor, because it, it soon became very clear to us that there's nothing we do in life that is similar to the way it's done by someone who is not the Hashem market. We well, don't maybe I would reframe it as the yeah. way we live our lives, it permeates every experience. Exactly. So again, because I'm responsible also for what the company invests in, I feel the responsibility on my shoulders. Do we need a book about going to the doctor? And the answer is absolutely. We don't go to, I, we, would, we would go to bookstores and look at, and try to look and see what doctor books are out there. So of course, you know, before we do ours, well, what else is already available? Like, do we need to invest in, I go to the doctor or not? And it would be a story about, you know, an animal who went to the doctor, like a baby giraffe who went to the doctor and took medicine and the doctor made me better and now I'm better. And it, again, a moment of clarity. Well, we don't go to the doctor, so the doctor makes us better. And that is key in every project that Hachai undertakes or every book that comes across you know, a submission's desk is to say, what does it add value-wise, hashkafically? Is it giving us something that we can't gain? I mean, if you could just buy a book, a, a science book about, I don't know, a topic, you know, parts of the body. Well, we have a book about parts of the body because that's in every preschool curriculum, but it's what mitzvah can you do with every part of the body? Um, everything through a Jewish lens, everything through a proper hashkafic lens is the idea. So back to this question you asked about, we can find a way in inclusion. When you look at inclusion as, uh, it's kind of a hot topic today and not just in literature, but inclusion even in architectural design. Can, you know, public spaces, can you have a park that has a ramp and a staircase that are seamlessly and beautifully designed so that the space itself says, everyone's welcome here. These are things that society is grappling with right now. So right. even though every park can't be perfect, as you said before in the yeah. book, 
the it book, everything, real life. everything can be perfect. Exactly. You so, ever look back at older books and say, you know what? I want to reprint this, but change the illustrations because I want uh, Yeah, to we do that sometimes. We okay. actually do. Okay. Um, as, as things go out of print or just because? Well, the first version of Is It Shabbos Yet had mom in a tichel with a little hair sticking out. So we took the opportunity to re-illustrate and people who remember that first version very fondly and loved the way that mommy looked, you know, when she bench left and everything, but then, then she had her shades on. Yeah. Um, we, yes, there are not a lot of opportunities to completely redo something, but when that, that comes our way, we take advantage of that. We just want every single book to be, um, the absolute best that it can while not losing sight of what makes it appealing for children. Because at the end of the day, if it's preachy or it's boring or or it doesn't scan or it's hard to read out loud or the words, you know, the vocabulary is too high or, too, or it's, it's, you know, it doesn't have a flow, right, or some kind of a lyrical quality, then it's not literature. Then it's just maybe a speech. <laughs> you know? Like it's not it's not what it, it could be if it doesn't have it doesn't hit all these points. So this conversation was fascinating. We've we've gone on on all different types of topics, and I hope yeah. everyone who's listening to this can feel something that they take away. I would like to wrap up by just pointing out here, and then get some of your thoughts on the matter. As you know, we we put out this series of podcasts in honor of Heitavis. Heitavis is the day um, where um, Chabad won a monumental court case over the uh, you know the jurisdiction of the of the Rebbe's library, and the Rebbe then told us a year later that that it's the time to focus on you know Jewish books and Sfarim. So when we as moms, on um, you know, on hate, approaching hate Tavis, buy books for our home, for ourselves, we also take the time to buy children's books. So in revisiting this conversation, we're talking about, well, why would a children's book be considered a, a, like the value of a safer? So if we can just address some of like, because of the values that we're transmitting, what are your thoughts on that? So yes, the, the book itself, there are many ways, that, there are many things that make a book a Jewish book. So I would say, one thing that's very obvious, if it's a story from the Torah, if it's a book, this is the, <laughs> this is yeah. a translation of this Kind is Little Rifka. Spanish version of what, right. Kind Little Rifka? Okay. Kind Little Rifka, which is out in a astonishing amount of languages. Wow. Uh, Portuguese to German to French. Yeah, I have a whole stack of ones that Shulchan have prepared. So definitely so, books that transmit Torah Books that transmit a, a story from the Chumash itself. Stories that promote, um, let's say something like the king in the field, a concept that is uniquely Jewish, or a mitzvah like book such as um, it's called Kibbutz Aim. It teaches a child a phrase, Kibbutz Aim, as well as the concept. What does it look like to honor your parents? And coming from a um, Jewish or, or Lima Torah, a time for Torah, which is a, um, we we are very much. We always wanted to have a book about Stila for children. And we started from a, a, a place that wasn't a child just looking at a sitter, but a book called From My Heart, one of our recent high books, where we, where we address the concept of talking to Hashem throughout the day, which to even, even children who can't read and don't know all the tefillahs, that's an aspect of tefillah that even adults can be inspired when they read this book to a child, they can say, how much of my davening is really just talking to Hashem with what's on my heart? Um, a book about... I mean, it, it, it's a, mit, a mitzvah, like I keep kosher to the idea of, of an example of, of somebody who's great or Hasidus, which is embedded in the books, like some real important philosophy. We have a book that looks very humorous called If I Went to the Moon by Sarah Blau. And it's the idea that the earth was created and we are put here to do mitzvahs. So so it's a deep concept. Exactly. But I guess what makes these foreign for children is that this exactly. is the way so to transmit taking, the values. The we're taking a huge stuff. topic, which is philosophically essential to every Jew, and putting it in between two shiny covers with lots of pictures, but that doesn't take away from the core value. The creation book, and this is a, this is something that sets us apart from everyone else in the world. We believe that Hashem created the world. This the artwork is magnificent i think again talking about a classic this paper cut style is top of the line when it comes to artistic quality but so it's for those of you who are listening audio we're looking yeah. at the creation book yes. which has paper cut out illustrations yes, by, by Heidi Danberg and illustrated by dina ackerman with great <laughs> amount of time she's i don't think she's ever going to do this technique again um so you know these things are 
it's a magnificent opportunity to convey the heart and soul of what Judaism is all about. Now, the majority of the more the majority of Hachai children's books that you had said is geared for the pre-reader, but I believe Hachai also has um, young early reader books. So there is right. We do book. have they they hover yeah. around the third grade level, and um, you know there are times that I just pick up the phone and call our local girls' school and say we have something that would be amazing as a lesson to base to base a unit around. You know, a book. Um, there are there are a series of books that are based in various time periods in Jewish history, where the main character has to has the opportunity to make the Torah choice. So we have an immigrant story, but most immigrant stories, if you just take a library book, are the immigrants and how they make compromises with Shabbos because they needed a job. Whereas we will tell the story of somebody who had a sewing machine at home in the tenement where they lived in order to keep Shabbos. So we're just taking that Jewish choice. If we have a, um, a story set in, uh, in Spain during the inquisition, we'll talk about making the choice to leave rather than to you know, hide the, their Judaism, like that kind of thing, where we're, we're taking a, a plot line that is not common. Achai has a book, um, Nine Spoons, which is set, you know, it's, it's set in modern times, but it's a grandmother telling about her Holocaust experience in a work camp. And the idea that there are many, many families that have that background and remained from is, was not found in children's literature until that book was created. It was mostly, the, you know, the story where a Holocaust survivor is angry and lives a different lifestyle afterwards. So we, Hachai has the opportunity to represent that from choice, that Hashem-centric world that we want our children to, to absorb and to love and to commit to. So I, I feel like these books are a tremendous um, tool and a tremendous, uh, each one to me represents an experience. So what the takeaway for me today is I would love to inspire everybody, not just to buy Jewish books, but to do two things. Re-examine your bookshelf. And it is perfectly okay to have books that you just hate reading to your kids. That's all right. Or books where you hate the artwork or you can't stand the, the text. I just don't want to create something that's bland and neutral. So when people come over to me and say, oh, I hate this book. I just don't like the pictures. I don't like the faces. I'm like, okay, I, I'm happy you feel strongly about children's books, I do too. Or if they say, I love this book. I, my kid wants it every night and I never get tired of reading it. And we, it's just, we do it every night. And it's such a, it's such a sweet moment for us. So you without know, getting into a specific book, cause you know, we wouldn't want to make that author or artist feel bad. Are there any feedback that you got from parents that make you feel like mm, that book we could have done better, or we're going to improve on our choices without giving us the example of a specific book? I mean, but you I said like some, some, there could be some books that you I know, don't know. These books are, <laughs> these books are all my babies. And one of the great, um, the great things about my job is that the managing editor, um, Jesse Leverton has to make the business decisions. And sometimes he looks at me and goes, you know, this book is not going to sell. <laughs> and I'm like, not my job. Right, okay. So <laughs> I you're saying you, the East yeah. was so close to your heart. Right. Okay. Right. I, I think this book should exist. And then whether people buy it or not, um, I can never, I can never predict. But should there be a book called Hashem is Truly Everywhere? That's a huge piece of what we believe. That is exactly what we want children to feel every moment of every day. And what do they need to know in order to believe that and feel that? Well, we have a little, a quirky book called The Invisible Book because it came across by Bracha Getz and she, um, and the, oh, this one is from Hani Alta. So a lot of these books, they work together. When you have a complete Hachai library or when you look at your bookshelf and evaluate and say, okay, this book came from Amazing Savings. Maybe we've outgrown this. Maybe we don't need this book because it doesn't, it doesn't really fit. Now, hearing, yeah. hearing, now yeah. we took the time to look at some of all the intentionality that, yeah. that you that Hachai makes in his books. Now we're not saying that everyone should only buy Hachai books. That's not the purpose of this. No, no, no. That they're actually but, now. But, but a, hearing all this yeah, intentionality, yeah. yes, yeah. it may be. So coming towards Hayteves, number one, go out and um, buy books to improve your library. But before we buy books, sometimes it's helpful to take a look at our library and say, hmm, exactly. Are, any, are, value are these books on our bookshelf yeah. really in line with the values I want to transmit to my children? Because right. Do books, I want it? Right. Do I want to waste a story time where we just laugh at it and what? And sometimes. Maybe we do, you know, there are funny books out there that could work in our, in our lives, but there's nothing as powerful as a book that also has these very important hashkafic ideas and halachic information that you're, that, that the conversation with your child then becomes, then, then 
really turns to another level. It's not like, did you eat your sandwich? Or, you know, did you, what, you know, um, clear the table, throw out your, it raises the level of the conversation, which is childhood. We only have a few precious years to convey so much. Um, so not only should we, I, I think that it's a good opportunity to reevaluate, and that's true with everything, your video library or certain activities where maybe you, you did something with your kid and you're like, you know what? We can find other places to go or different things to do. You know, you can reevaluate. And that's the wonderful thing. You can pull back at any time and say, yeah, I'm going to upgrade this. Or I'm going to upgrade that. But the really the most important takeaway, no matter what's on your shelf, um, for me is utilize, the, grab the moment, seize the moment. The laundry will wait. Or you'll leave it, like I said, you'll leave it in the basket or, you know, order pizza. But sit down and read. Grab that precious time with your child. And, um, you know, because our families are Kanaihara, all different age groups, sometimes a reading session really needs to be one-on-one. -on -one. So you read, you know, to a child who comes home from school earlier, the books that interest them, and then maybe you read different books when the older children get home. And then there's opportunities like when, you know, if you're holding, if you're <laughs> holding a nursing baby and reading to a toddler and a five-year-old who can't see the pictures, sometimes I, I discovered with my own kids, it wasn't like reading in a classroom where they're all the same age and they all sit around in a circle. Sometimes taking a child alone just to read can be this wonderful and, and bonding moment that children in a large family need. They need that one-on-one -on -one sometimes. Right. So, yeah. Okay, so we have this book reading, you know, the Rebus talked about buying the books for Hey Teves as a way to yes. increase, you know, the year's exactly. mind of the home, let's make the home a home of Tyra. So let's look at our children's books, I guess, with intentionality to ensure that our children's books are also serving that value of filling our homes as a Tara-based home and um, looking at these books to see if they're value-driven and ensuring that the time we spend with our children are being used um, to- Right, can have can have that that uh, double benefit. It's not just literacy, it's, it's Jewish literacy and inspiration. So that when you've closed that book, I, we always hope a child will say, please mommy, read it again. Right. It's always interesting to me to see, you know, which child loves which book. Which book? Exactly. about this book that exactly. makes them keep choosing it over and over. So but that's, that's why we have a wide such... variety of books because yeah, we, we have a wide variety of books. not all equal yeah. and different different yeah, books. Like you exactly. said, I love this one. I love that one. I'm sure it's, yeah. it's not all the same for everyone. Thank yeah, you so much for your time today, Dorola. I hope everyone's a pleasure. I can great. talk books with anyone, anytime. <laughs> it's, it's really a pleasure. Right. And uh, it's it's just, I get such a nachas. Um, out of seeing that Hachai has a back library of titles that have lasting value. So, you know, you, you treat the books well, save them, you know, from your children to your grandchildren. I hope that these books will always remain in print and available for people. Okay. Um, Thank you for all the work that you do. And I'm sure, as you said, that since you go through each book thinking, you know, if I handed this book to the Rebbe, what would the Rebbe right. say? But I'm sure that together we are all giving the Rebbe much nachas when we choose to give over these values to our children. So let's create a better world every minute. Right. The perfect world of the picture book. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank this you. was really fun. And um, yeah, thanks everybody who, who joined in. We hope you enjoyed today's recording. Please take a moment to leave a rating or a review to help others find the podcast. We welcome you to support our vital work at mikvah.org forward slash donate. For feedback, please email podcast at mikvah.org. Have a wonderful day.